All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it up to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll be in chapter 2. We are working our way through the series of seven messages from the Lord Jesus to seven historical churches as Jesus speaks to them, but he doesn't speak to them alone because at the end of each one of these messages, he says, let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what that means very practically is this, if you want to hear what the Lord Jesus would say to you today through this, through this message to this church that he gave, if, if you want to hear, if you're willing to hear, he has a message for you. He has a message for me. He has a message for us, uh, for this church. And so we are asking the Lord of the churches to speak to this church, to us, and teach us by his grace. So we come today to the fourth in the series of seven messages to a church in a town called Thyatira, and we pick it up at verse 18 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And we should just stop right here and recognize that this church is healthy in many ways, and the Lord is commending them for their, their faithfulness, their health. But, verse 20, I have this against you. Now, right there is a lesson to all of his churches, to us, to everyone, that we can be very healthy in many, many ways and still have issues that the Lord wants us to deal with. We never want to get to a place where we're complacent or we think, yeah, we're, we're all that, we got it. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on to a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast you have until I come. Keep holding on. Hold on to me. Hold on to the truth. 
The one who does this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself, I myself have received authority from my Father. He's telling of the time he's going to come and reign on this earth, and those who belong to him will reign with him. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the skills that's important to learn and develop as you study the scriptures, as you study the Bible, is learning the skill to pay attention to details, especially when things are repeated, when there is kind of reiteration, repetition. And uh, if you didn't notice, if you've been reading along and and going through this, uh, this series with us, something that's uh, a detail worth noticing is that in each one of these messages to the seven churches, Jesus always begins by describing himself. And he does it by referring back to the description of him that we first have in chapter one, when the apostle John was given this vision of Jesus glorified, Jesus in his glory. And so the first message to the first church in chapter 2, verse 1 begins The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And those symbols were explained. And second message, verse 8 The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Don't, don't let those words just kind of you know, roll past you. It, you think how amazing this is. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Wow. Third message, verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And now here in verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, probably speaking of his penetrating gaze, able to see all things, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I don't know exactly what that means, but bronze is strong and stable, and I think it speaks of his strength. Now, of course, all of this was written long before the invention of photography, before video technology. And so, if you wanted to communicate to somebody, and you were writing to them in a a time before photographs, time before YouTube and any of that, if you wanted them to visualize what you had seen, you needed to appeal to their imagination. And so you used language that's descriptive to try to paint a picture in their minds. And sometimes ordinary language just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't do it. And so then you use symbols, you use imagery, you use analogies, you compare things to other things to try to help describe what is otherwise indescribable. And so this book of Revelation is just full of these symbols, and many of them are used to describe the person of Jesus as a person of overwhelming power and majesty. In fact, it says in chapter 1, when the Apostle John first glimpsed 
Jesus in his glory. He was overwhelmed, and it says he fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. He's just, he's overwhelmed. He is staggered by this, this person and just the majesty and the glory and the grandeur and the holiness. And this is consistent throughout all of the Bible. Anytime, anytime we have a, a situation where somebody gets, an ordinary mortal like one of us, gets just even a glimpse of the glory of God, they all do the same thing. Wham! Face down in the dirt. Because they are just overwhelmed with just the, the awe, the majesty, the supremacy, the, the glory, the holiness. Holiness. He's, God is utterly other. Creator. And they are just, they are overcome by their inadequacy, by their impurity, their sin, they're just overwhelmed. They, they just know they are unworthy to see what they're seeing. The question is, for us, why does Jesus keep referring back to this description of himself why does he keep why does he want us to keep this this imagery this picture of himself in his glory and majesty why does he want us to keep that in mind as we're reading these messages here's what i think the answer is we have got to remember who it is who is speaking to us if we're going to take what he says seriously, especially the parts that are difficult, we've got to remember who is speaking. See, this is not, these are not the words of just some random philosopher. These are not the words of some politician. These are not the words of some celebrity who just, goes on the air and just blabs out their opinion about whatever. And we're free to just go, yeah, whatever. And just disregard it if we don't care for it. This is the one who created you. This is the one who spoke into existence with his word, the globe were all, well, you're sitting on it and I'm standing on it. Who spoke into existence the sky above us, the sun, moon, stars, all those galaxies, countless beyond measure, spoke that into existence. This is the one who gives you every breath you take who sustains us all by his power. This is the one who knows your purpose and who alone can fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. And this is the one, this is the one to whom you personally will give an account 
for your entire life. Every thought you've ever thought, every word you have ever spoken, every act you have ever done. Now, you, you might be at the place, you know, where you have yet to, you know, agree that that's the truth or believe that that's the truth. You may be very skeptical. You may be still checking it out. And that's fine. I just want you to understand what is being said here. Because these are given to us not... These words don't come ultimately from a human source according to what it's claiming. This is let the... Let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit, the Spirit of God. That's where these words are coming from. And the message is clear. We are going to give an account to this majestic person. He is the one with whom we need to reckon. And this is, it's so important to understand this because so much of what he says is hard it's hard. Now, Jesus says a lot of things that are, are, are very, you know, enjoyable to hear. That he loves us. That he is the bread of life. And he invites us to come and be satisfied. And he is the fountain of living waters. And, and he is the good shepherd. And, and we can be his sheep. And he says all these things we love to hear. But he also says some things that are very difficult. And this message today is a perfect example because what Jesus says here is very counter-cultural. And it's very contrary to what, you know, just to just uh, normal human thinking and feeling and desiring. So what that means is, is as we listen to this, we all, each one of us has a decision to make. Okay? If Jesus says one thing about whatever topic he's talking about. If he says one thing, but, but our desire or the people we really admire or our culture says something completely different than what Jesus says, we have a decision to make, don't we? Whose opinion is going to count the most with us? Whose, whose instructions do we go with? And what this is saying is that if we take Jesus seriously, that's the point of this you know, repeated description of himself. Take Jesus seriously. If we take Jesus seriously, that means we have to take what he says. Everything he says seriously. Not just the things we like. So what is the big lesson for us here from this message to Thyatira? Well, I think it's this. In a nutshell, the Lord of the churches is telling us that when people call themselves Christians, when they call themselves Christians, but promote ideas and beliefs and behavior that are not Christian, churches are not supposed to be okay with that. When people within churches advocate believing things and doing things contrary to what Jesus has said, 
Churches should not tolerate that. But see, that's what this church in Thyatira was doing. They had somebody in their church, a woman who called herself a prophetess, which means she claimed to have divine authority for what she was saying. She was saying, claiming that what she said was what was in the Bible. This is truth from God. And she was promoting participating in immoral sexual behavior. And if you don't know, let me just clarify that. That's the word porneia, from which we get pornography, but... Porneia means any sexual activity outside of the bounds of the husband-wife relationship of marriage. That's what it means. And so she's promoting immoral sexual behavior and pagan idolatrous worship practices, eating food sacrificed to idols. And those two things probably went together. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. She's teaching that, she's promoting that, she's getting people involved in it, and they're not doing anything about it. They're acting like that's okay. They've compromised. They've compromised. And if you're wondering, how, how in the world could that happen? And we need to be careful not to be too quick to condemn the church as if you and I would never, ever do such a thing. You have to know, these Christians were under intense pressure from the culture they lived in. These seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, these were all grouped geographically very close together. It was the Roman province of Asia, what today is the land of Turkey, and they were all very close. So they were all part of a common culture, and as you read through the seven messages, Certain things keep coming up, like sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. See, that was just normal in that culture. That was just normal. That's what everybody did. And we know from history that there was a very tight connection between the local pagan temples where this stuff happened and business. So, get this, if you wanted to be successful in business, then you were expected to support the temples. You were expected to go to the pagan celebrations. You were expected to eat the food sacrificed in the temples to the other. We're not talking about buying you know, meat uh, at the meat market where it may have come from the temple or may not. You didn't really know and you didn't ask. We're talking about actually going into the temples, the, the animal is sacrificed to the idol, the meat is put on the barbecue, and you eat it right off the barbecue. You were expected to do that. And you were expected not only to condone the sexual activity that was going on, you were expected to affirm it, celebrate it, and even join right in. And if you did not it would be almost impossible for you to do business in that town. Very tough to make a living. Now, you take that pressure, and now you add into that the desire we all have to fit in. 
You know, when everybody's doing it, I don't just mean a few, I mean everybody's doing it, pressuring you to go along with it. Sometimes we talk like peer pressure is something only young people deal with. No, it isn't. Peer pressure affects every age. Nobody wants to be the weirdo that doesn't fit in. Nobody wants to be that guy. So this is a real dilemma. Now, now along comes an expert who says they love Jesus, they know the Bible, they know theology, and they say, hey, listen, relax. No problem. Of course you can affirm those things. Of course you can celebrate those things. Of course you can join right in and do those things. In fact, you should do those things. What, didn't Jesus tell us to love our neighbors or something? He told us to love people. Didn't Jesus tell us not to judge people? Go ahead and join them. Don't be that judgmental jerk. And so now, all of a sudden, something we thought that the Bible taught was a bad thing is now a good thing. Because somebody with a PhD in Bible says so. And you ought to be able to draw some connections between what was happening there and what's happening in our world today. Because it's always easier, you know, to not resist the culture, but to join right in. It's always easier to go with the flow than swim against the current. I don't know about you, I'd rather not be labeled intolerant, unloving, bigoted. I, I mean, I don't want that. I'd rather have people think I'm kind of cool. Probably a surprise to many of you, but. I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to think I'm with it. I'm reasonable. I like being admired. And if you're honest, you do too. You like to be admired. But sometimes, sometimes following Jesus and being admired, they don't go together. Sometimes, Following Jesus means having to say that something really isn't okay, even when everybody else says it is okay. Sometimes following Jesus means taking an unpopular stand and not going along. Now, there are good ways to do that, and there are really bad ways to do that. That's another message. We're not going there right now. But, that's the point. There are, uh, there's times when following Jesus and going along with the culture just don't work. So there are two countercultural lessons, at least two countercultural lessons for us in this message to Thyatira. Okay, here they are. Number one, first lesson: counterculture. Don't tolerate the promotion of sin by so-called Christians. By professing Christians, don't tolerate the promotion of sin. So as a church, we are to be, by definition, a group of Jesus followers, obeyers of Jesus, trust people who trust in him and follow him. So as a church, as a group of Jesus followers, as people who wear the badge, Christian, okay, when something that God calls sin. 
when something that God calls sin gets redefined, repackaged, remarketed, and promoted as something that's now harmless and even good, wholesome. When, when people who call themselves Christians do that, we're not, to, we're not to just look the other way. We're not to tolerate it. We're not to ignore it. We're not to pretend it isn't happening. It might feel loving. It might feel loving to tolerate it, but it really isn't. It's not loving. Now, let me say a couple things about that. First of all, let me say something about tolerance so you don't misunderstand. Okay? There is a kind of tolerance that is not only very good, but very necessary for, well, for all of us, that the followers of Jesus should practice. A good kind of tolerance. This is the tolerance that says, you know, even though I strongly disagree with you, I'm going to tolerate your existence. And I... And I'm not going to persecute you. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to be harsh with you. And I, I'm not going to even make fun of you. In fact, just the opposite. I'm going to seek to do good to you. Now, this tolerance is commanded by Jesus for those who follow him. This is not optional. This is real tolerance. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your enemy and hate, or no, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise. He is good, makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. God tolerates those who hate him. And we are to do the same. That's not the kind of tolerance Jesus is speaking against in this message to Thyatira. Here he's addressing a phony tolerance which claims that every idea, every thought, every belief, every action are all equally good, equally acceptable. And so we should embrace and celebrate them all. Now here, the issue is, here's a church. There's a church. And they're tolerating somebody in their midst who is promoting sin in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ. Now, be sure you get this. Be sure you get this. We're talking about something that God clearly defines as sin. Okay, We're not talking about legitimate issues of disagreement that Christians have different opinions about. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, we're talking about God-defined sin. So, sexual activity outside of the guardrails of the husband-wife marriage relationship is sin. Not because I said so. Not because that's my opinion. Now, because we took a vote, God says so. Participating in idolatry, participating in the worship of false gods is sin. 
God says so. And the point here is that tolerating the promotion of that, redefining it, say it really isn't sin, it doesn't really matter, that kind of tolerance is not loving. It doesn't matter who says it is. Basic rule of thumb. If you're more tolerant than Jesus, something's wrong. And that is true even if he's calling something sin that we don't really understand why. You know, I remember as a, as a young man before I was married, I remember really wrestling with this whole rule about sex thing. You know, the husband and wife only thing. And I just wondered, why, why did God make that rule? It's so inconvenient. It is so, so hard. And it just seemed to me like it was arbitrary. Like God just said, okay, I'm going to make a list of things that aren't okay, and here's one of them. It just seemed to me like it was just keeping a lot of people from enjoying themselves. After nearly 30 years of pastoral ministry and watching our world completely lose its mind on this issue, I don't wonder anymore. I'm pretty sure I know why God made that rule. It's because he loves us. It's because he wants what's best for us. He wants us to really enjoy ourselves. The problem, okay, be sure you get this, especially if you're young. Okay, get this. Yeah, because you've heard it said, you know, this whole idea of God, you know, restricting sex thing. Yeah, you know, that's just a bunch of uptight people, control freaks, who want to keep people from having a good time. Okay, the problem with sex outside of marriage is not... N-O-T, not, that it's too pleasurable. As if God's okay with us enjoying ourselves a little bit, but if we really enjoy ourselves, sin. God has no problem with pleasure. Who do you think invented it? The problem, if you want to experience the greatest, deepest pleasures Always do things God's way. Always. Okay? He knows what he's doing. He knows. He made us. He made our bodies. Okay? He knows. This myth that somehow, you know, married people don't have much fun. But boy, if you're not married and you're one night standing and, you know, partying and serial dating, that's where the fun is. Baloney. That's where the heartache is. The problem with sex outside of marriage is not that it's too pleasurable. It's that it's too selfish. It's too unloving. That's the problem. And if you take, just add up the sheer misery created in this world by us not following God's instructions on sexuality, it's staggering. Just staggering. You add up all the suffering caused by sexual abuse, 
rape, premarital sex and all the broken hearts, adultery, sexually transmitted infections, abortion. You just take that one issue alone. Over 50, I think it's close to 60 million human lives destroyed since Roe v. Wade. And the vast majority of them happen because we're not following God's rules on sex. Pornography and what that is doing, we are in danger of losing a whole generation because it's rewiring brains and bodies so that there are no people aren't capable anymore of enjoying true intimacy with an actual human being. You add up all the suffering caused. It's, it's just, it's massive. It's massive. Now, can Jesus forgive? Can Jesus heal when we have blown it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Please hear that. But here's the thing. The scars very often go deep and they're long-lasting. And so the sooner we put our trust in Him and the sooner we, we do things His way, the better off we're going to be. The better off we're going to be. We, and all right, Here's where this relates to the sermon. We never do anybody a favor. We never love anybody if we act like disobeying God in this area is okay. We don't do them a favor. We're not helping them. We're not loving them. If God says something sin, it is destructive. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Jesus came to free us from sin. He did not come so we can sin and get away with it. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Righteousness is where it's at. Righteousness is where the joy is. Righteousness is where the pleasure is. Righteousness is where the goodness is. Not sin. That's just such a myth. And he offers his pardon, and he offers his righteousness to whoever wants it. And if we reject his pardon, all that's left is his judgment. And it's serious. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your worst deserve. That's serious. That's serious. So anytime biblically defined sin is redefined into a good thing, the followers of Jesus need to lovingly speak up and say, no, that's not, that's not a good idea. And when I said lovingly, that's not optional. To speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way. All right. So, lesson one, countercultural lesson number one, don't tolerate the promotion of sin, but countercultural lesson number two, do be patient with sinners. <laughs> you might say, well, that doesn't sound countercultural at all. I mean, that's what everybody's saying. Be patient with sinners. Be pa- you know, we're, no, actually, no. 
there's a huge, huge difference between being patient with sinners and tolerating sin. Okay, what is the goal of tolerating sin? The goal is acceptance. The goal is getting to the point where sin is no longer sin. We say it doesn't matter. Every choice is equally good. That's the goal of toleration. The goal of patience with sinners is very different. The goal of patience is repentance. Helping somebody realize that sin is terrible so they can turn from it. That's the goal of patience. You know, one of the most amazing statements in this message is verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Really? Why? She's as guilty as sin. She deserved judgment. She was leading people astray. She was hurting people. Why give her time to repent? And the answer lies in the very heart of God. And if you've never heard this, hear it. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God wants us to live. He takes no pleasure in judging the wicked. People say, I've said it myself, why doesn't God hurry up and do something about all the evil in the world? You've thought that. You see something horrific on the news, and you just think, well, how long, O Lord? Come on. Let's get this over with. Why does he give the world more time? 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What promise? His promise to come again. His promise to clean house. His promise to right every wrong. His promise to put an end to evil forever. He's not slow about that promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Time to repent. Time to come to our senses. Time to realize how wrong we are. Time to realize how much we're hurting others and hurting ourselves and dishonoring God. Time to turn from the things that are ruining us and separating us from the one who made us and loves us. Time to receive His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. Look at Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. If you don't know the Lord yet, seek the Lord while He may be found. That's today. Call on Him while He's near. He's near today. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Not, oh, okay, here's just a little bit of forgiveness. This is a picture of overflowing, overwhelming God grabbing your hand and jumping with you in the pool. Doesn't that sound good? His overflowing, overwhelming pardon, that's what God wants you to know. If you're walking around with a big load of guilt, because you know 
you've not been living the way God wants you to live. He wants you to get rid of that load of guilt and have a huge load of pardon gushing all over you. Grace, mercy. So, we have, for followers of Jesus, we have a two-sided responsibility in response to sin being promoted and celebrated. One, don't say it's okay. Don't look the other way. Don't pretend it's no big deal. And two, extend patience and kindness. Kindness. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. To those caught up in sin and point them to the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. Be countercultural. Our Father, uh, I, I just want to thank you that your love is a transforming love. Uh, you accept us just as we are, but you love us too much to let us just stay that way. You want us to know your grace more and more deeply and express it more and more abundantly. Father, help us. Help us trust you, our Savior. Help us believe what you have said and help us live that way. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.